that's a great idea and I want to go away and chew on it. But, but so far I'm not getting blown away by preaching because you know, like I, I never heard <laughs> Billy Graham step up to the mic and say, number one, dimensional location. <laughs> <laughs> he, well, he didn't talk that anyone, way. He said, he said, you're a sinner. <laughs> Jesus is a savior. Yeah. The so, Bible so says, yeah, yeah, the Bible says, so you're like number one. I, and I hope I'm not <laughs> preaching too. I hope this is not dimensional as, location. I'm like, as Kenny, it sounds like a, as, it as, sounds as like a biblical we theologian. This episode, Hensley was asking us as we were preparing, he's like, oh, you know, everybody ready? Since we're going to be talking about the biblical Bible. Well, hello and welcome to another nutrient-rich episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. We are with the Coming Home Network. We're a network of people who've come from all kinds of different places and have somehow or other ended up in the Catholic Church. Ken and Kenny were both evangelical pastors, um, but I came from somewhere else too before I ended up Catholic. And we're doing a series on the church and what the Catholic Church teaches about what the Catholic Church is. If you want to watch previous episodes in the series, please go to chnetwork.com. Dot org. You can find all those episodes there in the uh, on the journey section under the resources tab. Uh, we also have an online community, and if you want to actively discuss these topics with others like yourself who may be asking these questions, go check out that. It's free. Uh, on the online community is community.chnetwork.org, and this program on the journey, along with a whole bunch of other resources, are all free. <coughs> Uh, because of the generous partners and mission who support what we do. And if you want to join them and support our apostolate, you can learn how to do that by going to chnetwork.org. There's a big button at the top that says donate, and you will help us to continue to do this and a whole bunch of other like things. Ken and Kenny, how are you? Doing good. That was a brilliant so introduction. Good. Did so did, did someone did someone teach you how to do that? Uh, you, yes. Do you take courses on that? How anyway, can I introduce yeah, we're here. if there's no one to teach me, Ken? You know, we're here. I teach yeah. <laughs> so um, I got some good looking feet over here, but they can't make it can't be on camera. Uh, at any rate, you guys ready to talk about the church? This is going to be, you know, I mentioned before oh, yeah. uh, in many introductions that Kenny, uh, well, Ken Hensley, you were a Baptist pastor. Kenny, you were a Pentecostal pastor. And some people might say, well, but they, <coughs> but they really are they plants, you know, are they? You know, people who are just making up their backstory. Well, in today's segment on uh, the Holy Spirit and the life of the church today, uh, you will have any doubt removed that Kenny really was a Pentecostal pastor because we've been having to like pull him back down all day. We're going you know, to preach. Very, very excited about this today. <laughs> very excited about this episode. Okay. Well, you can sit there and get warmed up for a while while I discourse. Yeah. All you right. Know, what I'm doing is just is just shy of preach of preaching. It's it's it'll, I'll call it discourse, although it may rise into preaching here and there, but nothing like what you have in my, your mind, Kenny. <laughs> okay, should I start? Do it. Let's have okay. church. <laughs> the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the topic for today. Now, just briefly, in past episodes, um, we three have looked at a number of biblical images, a number of symbols 
mainly taken from the Old Testament and then from the life, uh, then from common life at the time of Jesus and the apostles. The Catechism has described for us the church as a flock of sheep led by a shepherd who thankfully lays down his life for his flock. Um, it has described for us the church as a cultivated field, a vineyard, an olive tree, and this is just straight from Scripture, an olive tree, um, emphasizing the church as a living thing, a, 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 a living organism that receives its life by being connected to Christ, the source of life. And I think here of John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, over the past two episodes, we focused in on two really profoundly meaningful, beautiful images of the church. The church as the body of Christ and the church as the bride of Christ. And to, I guess, boil it down, both of these emphasize the church as one with her Lord Jesus Christ. The church, if you will, as the continuation, the very continuation of the incarnation in the world the church as the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ in the world after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. In fact, as we read last week, through the church, the Lord is extending his kingdom throughout the world. The church is his body. The church is his bride. The church is one with him. Life-giving connection to the source, to Jesus Christ. He extends his kingdom through the church. Now, in our episode today, gentlemen, we look at another extremely important New Testament image of the church, and that is the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's read uh, paragraph 797 from the Catechism. I love this first sentence. What the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the church. What the soul is to the human body, the, the principle of life. The Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the church. To this spirit of Christ, as an invisible principle, is to be ascribed the fact that all the parts of the body are joined one with another and with their exalted head. For the whole spirit of Christ is in the head, the whole spirit is in the body, and the whole spirit is in each of the members. The Holy Spirit makes the church the temple of the living God. Now, this first paragraph focuses on the Spirit, again, as the soul of the church, the soul, as the life-giving principle to the body of Christ, which is the church. It is that principle of life that animates the body of Christ. And when, when I read this, I'm going to give you guys a chance to, you know, to uh, jump in in just just a moment. But when I read this paragraph, you guys, what I think of immediately are passages in Scripture like Ezekiel 36, of course, where God, speaking through the prophet, describes what he's going to do when the... He's, he's looking forward in history and describing what he's going to do when the new covenant is initiated. And uh, God says through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out your heart of flesh. I mean, I will take from your flesh your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then here's the, the key. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. 
This is 500 years BC, and the Lord speaking through Ezekiel is talking about how one day he is going to put his spirit into all of his people, and his spirit will cause them to walk in his ways. I also think of the upper room where Jesus uh, is explaining to his disciples that he's going to the Father, but he says that when he goes, he will send the spirit who will be in you. (laughs) The spirit will come and the spirit will reside in you. I think of the day of Pentecost, when I read this paragraph from the Catechism, where the Spirit fell upon all of the children of God. And then I think of St. Paul's admonishment to the believers in Corinth. He's, um, he's admonishing them to shun all immorality, to shun impurity. And he does this by saying, and I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? So this first paragraph focuses on the Spirit's work within the believer and within the church, the body of Christ. But since Kenny, I'm looking at Kenny right now, since Kenny is going to treat in some detail this, this aspect of things, that is the Spirit, the effect of the Spirit within the church, what I want to do now is something a little bit different. What I'm going to do is I'm going to return to a theme that we've touched on a number of times in this series already, and that is the great theme of biblical typology. Because with this image of the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have one of the most beautiful examples in Scripture of how types and shadows given us in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New. So this is what I'm going to do. But before I do that, any comments from you two on what we've looked at so far, the spirit as the soul of the church? I mean, really, the one thing that I was going to mention is something that you already mentioned, right? Is Paul is talking about the uh, the body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so therefore, we should honor God with our body. And just the thought uh, kind of came to me from our previous discussions, right? That Paul is saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 which is just a few chapters ahead of a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the past couple of times about Paul talking about how the whole church is a body. So before he talks about the whole church is this body, he says that you also, right, are your temple of the Holy Spirit, you. Um, And this is where, and I mean, this is really going to get to be the case by the time Kenny gets done here in a little bit. But again, how all these images just crash into one another and just build off of one another. And it makes the brain explode once you start to try and see all the layers of like what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Ezekiel think, said it, I will put my spirit in you, in you. Go ahead, Kenny. I think from my perspective, the con- this ecclesiology of body or body ecclesiology is something that I bring with me into the Catholic Church from my days as a non-Catholic. It shouldn't be hard for Mm -hmm. any uh, non-Catholic Christian to hear that the Catholic Church has a body ecclesiology and a temple ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember very early as a Christian, long before I was ever in ministry, going to a church where I eventually went on staff. But in that church, Almost every time someone referred to the church, they didn't say church. They said the body, the body, Mm -hmm. the body. 
And I was a foreigner to Christianity, you know, by virtue of how old I was when I became a Christian. So when I started going to this church and I would hear people say, the body, the body, the body, I remember thinking, what are they talking about, you know? And then, of course, I, I learned the New Testament's understanding of, you know, of the church as this body that is a temple, mm -hmm. that my body is a temple and the whole body of Christ is a temple. So, as I said a moment ago, then the, the, with this image of the church as a, the temple of the Holy Spirit, I think we see one of the most beautiful examples of biblical typology and how types and shadows given to us throughout the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New. And I want to just walk through this so that those listening can can see this or can can hear it, because in the Old Testament, the image of a temple begins really in Genesis chapter one. Um, I don't want to go into detail on this. There's a lot that can be said, but a number of biblical theologians have commented on the fact that in the six days of creation, where God takes this, th this thing that is formless and void and structures it into a structured universe, God appears to be constructing a temple in which to dwell. And this is confirmed when he, when God creates an Adam and Eve in his own image and likeness, and he places them in the garden, um, quoting now, to till it and to keep it. Now, th this is something that really struck me when I first heard it, but the Hebrew here is literally to serve it and to guard it. And you say, okay, well, fine, to till it, to keep it, to serve it, or, or to guard it, who cares, you know, you know, words are words, it, except that these are the same Hebrew words that appear later on in the book of Numbers to describe what the priests are to do in the place of worship. In other words, it's liturgical language. God creates Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, places them in this garden um, to do what priests are going to do when they're in the sanctuary, okay, to, to, to serve it, and to guard it. So in in short, right from the beginning of Genesis, God is constructing a temple in which to live in. We call that temple the universe. And the Garden of Eden is depicted as a sanctuary in which God will dwell with his people. Um, and by the way, the, the, the Garden of Eden then becomes a model for all future sanctuaries and temples. So let's walk forward. Then comes the fall of the human race. Then comes Noah and the flood. After this, we have the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the children of Jacob, the 12 tribes, going down into Egypt, becoming slaves in Egypt, and then being delivered out of Egypt in the Exodus. So tie, tie these together. In the beginning, the Garden of Eden serves as a place where God could come and meet with his children, walk with them in the cool of the day, and speak with them. Well, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt and they enter into covenant with God at Mount Sinai and they begin their journey to the promised land, they're going to need their own sanctuary. They need a place where they can meet with God as well. And so Moses is instructed to build a tabernacle, um, a portable sanctuary, and, and I could even say a portable Garden of Eden, you know, uh, a place. And in fact, too, too many details again in the instructions, but the outer layer of, of covering was to be blue, which I think is a way of describing the universe again. This sanctuary is a little picture of the universe. It's a portable Garden of Eden. It's a portable universe, as it were. And so the outside is covered in blue and it's decorated with all the colors and all. It's decorated to remind God's people of Eden. 
And what's it for? Exodus 25 verse 8 says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. It's so that it's a place where God will dwell with his people. And in, and in Exodus chapter 40, once the tabernacle is fully constructed and completed, this is what we read beginning at verse 33. And he, that is Moses, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen and the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud abode upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, so here is the place of God's special presence with the children of Israel, and it's going to remain with them for hundreds of years now. In, in, in fact, the story goes on to say that the tabernacle moved through the wilderness for 40 years, and wherever the cloud of glory would pick up and move, that's where they would go, and the cloud of glory would settle. So it's God's presence symbolized by this cloud of glory in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant, um, that that this is the sanctuary now. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the place where God dwells with his people. And this goes on for hundreds of years until we come to David. Now, David is feeling terrible because he looks around and he goes, you know, I live in this gorgeous palace, and yet the Lord still lives in this little tent. And so he wants to build a great temple for the Lord, but 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 God doesn't allow him to do it. That's going to fall to his son Samuel, I mean to his son Solomon. So it's Solomon then who finally builds this great temple for the Lord. He builds a beautiful temple. It's covered inside and out with pure gold. And interestingly, it's inscribed with images of pomegranates and palm trees and flowers to remind them of what? Of the Garden of Eden. And when the temple is completed, the same as when the tabernacle was completed, when it was dedicated, we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So let me just tie this together. Like the Garden of Eden, like the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple becomes the location of God's special presence with his people on earth so that God might, to use the language of Exodus, so that God might dwell with his people. And the cloud of glory indicates this. Now, when we come from the Old Testament men into the New Testament, we come to the Gospels, we come to the story of the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. What do we find? In John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And as you know, the Greek word translated dwelt here is a word that can be translated tabernacled. John is saying, and the word became flesh and tabernacled or pitched his tent, a tent of flesh among us. And so John here is, is consciously linking the incarnation with the images of the tabernacle and later on, the temple. And, I, and the, the bit, these New Testament phrases just come into my head. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, which means God with us, God dwelling with us. Or if you've seen me, Jesus said, 
you've seen the Father. Or destroy this temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the comet comes, and by this he was speaking of the temple of his body. So, so it all comes together. Jesus is the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where God dwells among his people. Jesus is the place where God's people can come to meet with him, to meet with God. This is where you come, is to Jesus. And then just one final step. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus ascends to the Father, and he pours out his Spirit into the church. And the church, which is his body, the church, which is his bride, one with him, one flesh, the church becomes the Garden of Eden. The church becomes the tabernacle. The church becomes the temple. The church becomes the place where God dwells on earth. And there's so much profundity here, but just listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about this, verses 18 and following. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to one spirit, have access in one spirit, excuse me, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, that is the structure of the church, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's that language again. The church in Christ, being his body, being his bride, the church becomes that the dwelling place of God on earth. And I, I have one little application I want to make, but comments, gentlemen? I think the first thing I'd share, or one of the things I'd share here is this whole temple ecclesiology can also help to make sense of some of the things that are happening in the New Testament regarding what happens to Jesus in his ministry at the beginning at his baptism and then at the end at his at the moment of his death after his crucifixion then what happens at Pentecost at the beginning in in Mark's gospel it says the heavens are torn open that's the greek word that's used schizomenos mm-hmm. it's it's ripped apart and god's voice speaks well in the early story in genesis heaven is closed god's voice becomes distant to the first priest adam who is kicked out of the garden but in this mm-hmm. new garden in this new temple that god is building he rips heaven back open again and begins speaking and and anointing his son and then, and then at the end of Mark's gospel, the same word, uh, schizomenos or schizo, mm-hmm, torn, mm-hmm. torn open, is used a second time. And that's with respect to the veil of the temple, which is, which is a picture of, of two things, really. It's a picture of access in the sense that the temple uh, of God is now fully accessible. There's no more barrier. Mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. also a picture of departure. In the sense that the spirit of now God's temple is open to all of humanity, 
but God's Spirit has left mm-hmm. that temple. Well, to go where? Well, fast forward to the day of Pentecost, to the coming of the Spirit into the gathered assembly of the 120 believers in which the Spirit that goes out through the veil in the old temple mm. comes in to the gathered community in the upper room, and there is the rebuilding of the mm-hmm. temple promised in the Old Testament. Powerful, powerful imagery. So the, these these gospel writers are <laughs> temple theologians. They're else. absolutely temple theologians. I, you know, the one image that uh, strikes me as well is there's the 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 image of the glory cloud overshadowing the temple, and the cloud that's been overshadowing the temple gets up and departs, and where's the next time mm-hmm. we see that kind of language used? It's when Gabriel tells Mary that the power of the Most High will overshadow yes. you, which would be an absolutely, you know, fascinating and powerful thing to hear without temple ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. But with mm-hmm. temple ecclesiology, you're like, whoa, <laughs> there is something mm-hmm. serious going on here. Mary is mm-hmm. not just a random girl in the right place at the right time. Yes. There is temple language being applied to her. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing about sure. temple and... Go ahead. Go ahead, Kenny. Well, I'll just share one more thing. Please hold yeah. hold the thought that you had. But the, the one other image that the, the Bible is giving us is in temples. Uh, what you, you build this place where your God is supposed to dwell with his people, and you always set up an image of that God in the holiest place. Uh, and in the pagan temples, it's always um, a stone image. Well, when God builds his cosmic temple in Genesis, he puts an image in the middle of it, mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. a statue, if you will, of the th- that which represents him, except that it's not a stone image. It's living, breathing human beings who are mm-hmm. set in the middle of the temple who represent him and who, who serve him as his image in that temple. And this is why now Jesus is called the image of the invisible God uh, in, the, in the New Testament. He is in the center, mm-hmm. you know, of God's presence in the world is God's presence in the world and fully represents him in the, in that same way. So just all of these biblical images yeah, that yeah. you started with typology, they just they just rush forward into the New Testament and find their fulfillment. No, I'm really happy that you two added that because here I'm thinking, okay, I'm saying too much, I'm saying too much, I got to cut this short, you know, but there, there's so much more, there, there's so much right. more, you, you know, I didn't even want to mention, I didn't even want to mention Adam and Eve being removed from the garden or the Holy Spirit leaving the temple in the book of that in right. the book of Ezekiel he sees it right. and then and then the spirit returning when Gabriel comes to Mary but these mm-hmm. images are so rich and so beautiful and it's really just a fun and fascinating thing to study yes. them and and realize that here here you have a library the Bible written by a number of different authors separated by hundreds of years and yet you have this this story that is woven all the way through anyway, Thanks for adding all that. And the only thing that I wanted to say as an application, really, is as a Catholic, I realize that, uh, or I, I realize, but um, as a Catholic, when Catholics talk about the presence of God being with us and, and God dwelling with us, they almost always are referring to the Eucharist. And, and, and this is correct. I mean, the Eucharist is that place of a, a special sacramental presence, unlike any other place on earth, where Christ is with his people. And all I wanted to say, I guess, is that this is correct, but we shouldn't forget, we shouldn't forget um, 
all this symbolism, we shouldn't forget that that Christ, that in Christ, we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells within the church, and that we are the, the a special place of the dwelling of God. So it's not just, you know, I, I mean, I love to go into the church and I love to sit before the tabernacle and 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 pray, mm. and I love, you know, experiencing that presence. But I think sometimes Catholics can act as though that's the only place on earth where God is dwelling. And it's not the case. We are the, the temple of the Holy yeah, Spirit. Amen. Okay, what I'm going to do here, because I want to just throw this over to Kenny, is I'm going to simply read paragraph 7998 and then hand it over because this la- launches into what Kenny's going to talk about. Paragraph 798 of the Catechism, the Holy Spirit is the principle of every vital and truly saving action in each part of the body. He, that is the Spirit, works in many ways to build up the whole body in charity by God's word, which is able to build you up by baptism through which he forms Christ's body by the sacraments it is listing all the ways that the Holy Spirit is, is working by the sacraments, which give growth and healing to Christ's members by the grace of the apostles, which holds first place among his gifts by the virtues, which make us act according to what is good. Finally, by the many special graces called charisms by which he makes the faithful fit and ready to undertake various tasks and offices for the renewal and building up of the church. Take it away, Kenny. (laughs) Good. Well, so this last thing that you shared, uh, Ken, in in which the catechism says, and by charisms, uh, this gives way Mm -hmm. to the, the next three paragraphs in the catechism, 799 to 801. And I want to do I want to do two things with these three paragraphs. The first is that I I'm just going to read them, and then as little words or phrases provoke uh, minute thoughts, I'll share those small ex- explications explanations. Then I'm going to after that push back a little bit and take kind of a wide angle look at them in the larger context of the last episode, which gave us body and bride imagery so that we can have body, bride, and gifted temple or temple with gifted people in it. Uh, And how the idea of temple and charisms connects these two episodes together. So the second part of what I want to share will seem a little bit like a mini sermon. That's why I was joking with you guys earlier this morning. I feel like preaching. I've been preaching in my house all day. But let me read first and just share a few ideas Mm -hmm. and then push back. First of all, Paragraph 799. Here's what it says. Whether extraordinary or simple and humble, charisms, let's stop right there. Charism, charisma is the Greek word. It means grace or gift. So gifts, you could write above that in your catechism. Simple and humble gifts or charisms are graces of the Holy Spirit which directly or indirectly benefit, and, and here, here's the enumeration. Number one, the church, ordered as they are to her building up, and then second, to the good of men, that means all of humanity, and then third, to the needs of the world. <laughs> the catechism is saying that the Holy Spirit has put supernatural gifts inside of every single Christian, which are to be received by every single Christian in order to do three things. One, build up the church, 
So I have a role to play in the health and the building up and strengthening of the church. Two, for the good of humanity, or men, as it says, so I can be looking around and say, well, God has gifted me in this particular way for my fellow human beings, whether they're Christians or not. And then third, the needs of the world, which have to do with big and small things in every area you can imagine. God has gifted us to be able to do things by his spirit in all three of these dimensions. And then moving on to paragraph 800, which says, Charisms, these gifts of grace, are to be accepted with gratitude by the person who receives them and by all members of the church as well. Just say right there, you know, some people might say, well, why did God give me this gift? Uh, the catechism wants to say, no, 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 don't do it that way. Say, hallelujah, God's given me this gift. You know, <laughs> yay, yay, God, thank you for this gift, whatever it might be. And the church ought to say that as well to the gifted. They are, says the catechism, a wonderfully rich grace for the apostolic vitality and for the holiness of the entire body of Christ, provided they really are genuine gifts of the Holy Spirit and are used in full conformity with authentic promptings of the same Spirit. That is in keeping with charity, the true measure of all charisms. In other words, I need to do my spiritual gifts in a way that truly is Christ-like and that's upbuilding. For this, the entire 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters of 1 Corinthians are written so that we can know how to do this. And then finally, Paragraph 801. It is in this sense that discernment of charisms is always necessary. What that means is knowing what these gifts are and how they are to operate is always necessary. No charism is exempt from being referred and submitted to the church's shepherds. This is important stuff. Ken and I had a big conversation about this the other day. I'm going on. It says, their office is not intended to in, indeed to extinguish the Spirit, but to test all things and hold fast to what is good, so that all the diverse and complementary charisms work together for the common good. Now, I'm going to pass it to you guys for a little bit of reflection, but before I toss it to you guys for, for comment and feedback on this little section, I, I just want to reflect on this conversation I mentioned that I had with Ken the other day in which after I had become Catholic and after I had left pastoral ministry, my son asked me, Dad, how does it feel now being a Catholic and not being a pastor anymore? And I said, well, what do you mean not being a pastor anymore? And he said, well, you, you know, you're not the pastor of, of our church anymore. I said, here's how I understand it, son, now as a Catholic. I believe that God's gifts and callings are without repentance and that I always had a shepherdly gift, if you will, a gift in which I was compelled to care for God's people in shepherdly ways. I'm not a pastor in the sense that I'm an ordained priest anymore, but in communion with my pastor and my bishop, I offer myself my sh and any shepherdly capacities that I have to the church in full communion with my pastors. I don't do it for a paycheck. I'm not the senior pastor. It's no longer my job, but it's still part of my vocation as a Christian. Uh, and, and, and I think this section of the catechism can help some of us who've been pastors in that job slash vocational sense to understand that there's still a calling there. And that calling can be carried out in communion with 
and, as it says, referred to and submitted to the church's shepherds. You may have some thoughts on that, Ken, as you work with our pastors a a lot, uh, but I just throw that out for reflection. Yeah, I um, I think this is a good subject to bring up because one of the things that, yes, I deal with non-Catholic clergy that find themselves... Um, on a journey toward the church, and one of the th- one of the central things that they really struggle with is this idea. But I was called to the ministry. I I felt mm-hmm. a call to the ministry, and now mm-hmm. if I become Catholic, I leave my ministry, I leave my profession as a pastor, and I I go out and you know I start like I don't know you know spraying the shoes at a bowling alley, or or I start you know giving out tacos at the taco <laughs> at the restaurant or something like that, um, and. So I had to think this through, and the way that I thought it through, and I, I, I describe this now because it may help others, is I asked myself at the time, well, what do I mean when I say that I felt a calling? What did I mean? What does that break down into? And, and, I, and I looked at its constituent parts. Well, what it, what it means is that early on in my Christian life, I just felt a really a strong love for the Lord. I felt a strong desire to study God's word and to understand it and to teach it. Like I think about Ezra, you know, he gave, gave himself to study the law of God and to teach it. Uh, I had that strong compulsion to do that, to teach the word of God and to help others to learn God's word and to live God's word. So I, I, I had those desires. Well, when I broke it down into those parts, then I realized um, I can do all those things. Yes. Even even if I am the guy spraying the shoes at, at a bowling alley or handing out the taco, I can do all those mm-hmm. things. I mean, mm-hmm. I can still love Christ. I can still mm-hmm. want to study God's word and know it and understand it and convey it and teach it and help other people to grow in in the in their faith. I can still do all those things. And then I thought immediately of 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 the greatest apostle of all times, the apostle Paul, who was a tent maker. You know, that that was his job. And so he yeah. made tents, and yet he was still able to be an apostle in yes. all that that means. And so that's the way I answer that question for myself, and that's how I try to answer it for some of these ministers who feel like they're losing their entire identity when they leave the, the professional ministry. So I have a few thoughts to add on this from sort of a different angle, because I'm the one in here who was never a, a pastor, but I had a lot of experience of this very question in, in paragraph 801, and it was really a relief to me when I read this straight in the middle of the catechism, based on some of the experiences I had, uh, specifically the part that says, no charism is exempt from being referred and submitted to the, the church's shepherds. Their office is not indeed to extinguish the spirit, but to test all things and to hold fast to what is good. So the the diverse and complementary charisms work together for the common good. All right. So the context in which I experienced um, the frustration that this resolved would be in my time working at a Christian bookstore. Uh, Well, the hot new titles coming in, right, from all these new authors and uh, people who are pitching new, you know, marketing campaigns for new evangelistic items or, or that sort of thing. Or perhaps, uh, I mean, I experienced it as well going to a Christian liberal arts college. Uh, you know, at Asbury, I went with all kinds of people who were a Christian ministries major, many majors, many of them wanted to be church planters or start like part of a new worship movement, right? Um, to, to go out and put something in the world that had not really been been there before to really spark a renewal of some kind in the church, uh, some sort of independent renewal, right? That was spearheaded by them. Um, 
but I also experienced this in the music scene and the bands that I was in and, and the bands that we would play with and music festivals. And that could be a very competitive, you know, <laughs> sort of cutthroat world, even within Christianity and the music industry of people thinking that they have something special and unique to offer. And, you know, the idea to, you know, outperform this other person to get your word out there. And what can happen in that is you've got all these different things from the person who's marketing a product that's going to hopefully help people in their faith to the person who wants the church plant to the person who wants their musical project to really take off and change lives where none of them are accountable to a pastor. Like none of them, <laughs> right? None of them are accountable to a bishop yeah. or a diocese right. or any of that. And what right. happens is you've got a whole bunch of really extroverted, but also because there's some sort of art in the middle of it too, really sensitive people. So extroverted, sensitive people all competing for a similar market share. And who's to say which one of them is really got the Holy Spirit? So, I mean, we talk about it all the time and mm -hmm. how it plays out in debates like who has the right interpretation of scripture it plays out in a big way with people who are like mm -hmm. well who's got the gift and call here and who really ought to be up front giving the talk and who really ought to be mm -hmm. sharing their testimony and who really ought to be doing this thing so reading this idea of you've got a gift but it's got to be subject to something right. was just an absolute right. it's, it was one of those just water in the desert things to read in the catechism mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. And because the church is a temple, and a temple is an ordered place in which God dwells with his people, in which praise to God is given to him rightly, and service to God is given to him virtually, and ministry is done in a way that God himself would do it, this is why we have this language, uh, um, Matt, of things being done you know, in a way that's ordered to uh, the leaders of the church, their mm -hmm. shepherdly role over, uh, over and in our lives and so forth. Because after all, it's a temple. The church is mm -hmm. a temple and it's priestly people together have a shared vocation. And each of them, by virtue of the Holy Spirit filling the temple, have received a share in the gifts of Jesus. Now, what I want to do here, guys, is push back a little for the next few minutes and just unpack a few big ideas that will tie the last episode to this episode. And uh, I'll, I'll share, it'll seem a little preachy here, <laughs> maybe. Hey, well, but, listen, but just uh, listen, warn me, <laughs> warn me when you're going to be getting to preach so I can back up a little bit, okay, from the screen. <laughs> Do it. Get out your hanky, and when I make a good point, Ken, wave it at me. Wave your I just want to make sure okay. that this is subject, by the way, uh, to. <laughs> The church's shepherds, and you know, they want to test what's Amen. good here. Amen. <laughs> yes, I want to quench the spirit, though. <laughs> well, let, let me share three big ideas, guys. The first is, and again, we're doing body and bride last time, mm -hmm. temple and charisms this time. We've got all these things swirling around. Let's try to bring in some ideas that that will tie them all together. The first one, or number one, is dimensional location, or the dimensional location of the temple. In other words. Where is the temple? Um, well, this teaching tells us where it is. It is in the body of Jesus, which is the temple, which is in mm -hmm. heaven and earth. The body of Jesus mm -hmm. is a heaven and earth body. And so the temple of Jesus is a heaven and earth temple. And the church of Jesus is a heaven and earth church. 
And so this is accomplished, the fact that the, the church is a heaven and earth church united to the heaven and earth body of Jesus through a nuptial relationship, that is marriage, right? So this goes back to the last episode. Mm -hmm. The way in which we have become a heaven and earth temple is through our marriage to Jesus. We've been united to Jesus as his bride, the church, which is now then a heaven and earth church. And so this, by the way, this ecclesial reality about what the church is provides all of the theological material for our understanding as Catholics of the communion of the saints, which is, for instance, the basis for which or by which we ask saints in heaven who are Mm -hmm. in the temple with us to pray for us Mm -hmm. about the things that we're dealing with in the world, uh, in our pilgrim vocation. So, So because we are in a temple, because we are here on earth and seated with him in heavenly places, Mm -hmm. and the ministry of the temple happens in the church, we don't see, as Catholics, we don't see ourselves as wholly separated from our fellow Christians who are already in heaven. Let me pause right there uh, on that thought of dimensional location. The dimensions of heaven and earth are where the temple is. That's a great thought. Okay, that's my, my only thought is this. That's a great idea, and I want to go away and chew on it. But but so far, I'm not getting blown away by preaching because you know, like I I never heard <laughs> Billy Graham step up to the mic and say, "Number one, dimensional location." <laughs> he, well, he didn't talk that anyone, way. He said, "He said you're a sinner. Any- <laughs> Jesus is a savior." Yeah. So, the so, Bible so says. Far, yeah, the Bible says. So you're like. Number one, I, and I hope I'm not <laughs> preaching too. I hope this is not dimensional as, location. I'm like, as Kenny, it sounds like a, as, as, as like a biblical said before we started this episode. Hensley was asking us as we we're preparing. He's like, "Oh, you know, everybody ready? Since we're going to be talking about the biblical Bible." <laughs> biblical Bible. Well, yeah. I will yeah. say this: anyone, anyone who is at all familiar with Foursquare, uh, and especially our uh, sort of our our late spiritual father Jack Hayford wouldn't be shocked at all for me to say that point number one in my sermon is the dimensional location of the of the temple oh really really it's very 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 force very Jack Hayford of me to pick that as point number one see now but I digress see now I thought see now I thought that Amy <laughs> preached rather simple sermons although they were yeah. fearsome well Things grow and evolve. Matt, I just want everybody Matt, to see so. that that came from Hensley and not from me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't well, say anything the, about the, baseball. Okay, the go ahead. Is, guys, Number two. The, the, Number the temple is in heaven yeah. and on earth, and therefore the yeah. church is in heaven and on earth because Jesus is yeah. in his heaven and earth body, his resurrected body. And when right, we ask second, for the prayers of the saints, we're not going outside the temple. <laughs> Right, we're we're, we're in the temple when we do that. Yeah. How can yeah. you pray to the saints when they're in heaven? Well, they're in the temple. They're in the body of Jesus, and so am I. And that's what we're yeah. doing in the temple. We're praying together. All right, two, okay. the pilgrim vocation of the church. Uh, that is the temple. What is the vocation of the pilgrim church on earth? Well, here's a big shocker for you, going back to Ken's initial a uh, point of biblical typology, the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. 
Our pilgrim vocation as the Church of Jesus is, drumroll please, the original human vocation to, as image-bearing covenant partners with Jesus, his bride, with the image-bearing Son of God, bring all of creation into union and wholeness and perfection in our relationship with the second Adam, who has been given dominion over all of heaven and earth. So whatever you see typified in the original vocation of Adam and Eve, you see fulfilled or filled up to its fullest expression in the vocation of Jesus and his bride, which is what? To fill the earth with the dominion of God and to bring everything in the world into proper order and proper relationship with God. How is that done? How? How do we fulfill this pilgrim vocation? Well, the catechism tells us through charisms, interestingly. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have received by virtue of being united to Jesus. In other words, when the church is married to Jesus and in its nuptial union with Jesus, it receives the life of Jesus into itself and therefore a share in his life, his anointings, his callings, to the degree that Paul can say that the church is one flesh with Jesus, even more so than a husband and wife are one flesh. We have received the graces and the gifts of Jesus himself. It's a very powerful thing to think about if you sit still long enough and think about the implications of the fact that Christians have received, that the church has received the life of Jesus into herself, into itself. And so we receive what he has, and therefore we do what he does. Just as when God brought the woman to the man in the garden, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then what? Then they go out together and carry out the human vocation in the world to bring the whole world into union with God. Let me let me pause right there before I go on to the next thing. I would just say that this is one of the reasons that the Catholic Church cares that you get married in the Catholic Church, right? Because that's where right. God marries his people, <laughs> right? This is Yeah. There's an there's an overlap of imagery there and um some people might say, well the reason that they want you to get married in the church is so that, you know, the church can get the money mm-hmm. for the reception hall, you know, when you hold it in the fellowship place next door. No, it's because the whole image of what it means to be the church is a marriage, right? So if you're going to engage in one of these, we want you to be in a place where God engages in it with his whole people. So yeah. just want to throw it, yeah. throw that yeah, in. Yeah, and, you know, and the thing that's hitting me in this little talk here, Kenny, is, is Paul saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, you, you know, it's Christ in me. It's his life in me. It's his charis- It's his charisms. It's his gifting. It's his power. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I, I think that we can sometimes, we can con- continue to think that God is out there. And I, I, I look up to heaven and I, I look to God. I find God out there in the universe somewhere, you know. And, you know, without, we're not Eastern pantheists, nothing like that. But there is a true sense in which we should be able to look within and say, and look within, the Holy Spirit dwells within me, mm-hmm. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And, and what a, just what a, I mean, that's a thought I could 
you can meditate on for the rest of your life, you know, really. So yeah. very good. Amen. Thank you. Yes. So our, our pilgrim vocation as the church is the vocation of the first Adam fulfilled in the second Adam to bring all of creation into conformity to the will and the glory of God. And he has a covenant partner in that vocation. It's his bride, the church, mm. so that she does what he does mm-hmm. through the charisms, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that have been put into her by Jesus himself so that we can fulfill, number three, mm-hmm. third thought here, Christ's redeeming mission in three mm-hmm. areas. And these are, these are given in the catechism as we read already. The first is building up the church. So okay. I have a gift. You guys have a gift. Everyone has a gift. There's no, uh, no Catholic. No Christian who doesn't have a gift from the Holy Spirit that's put into them by virtue of their baptism in order to build up the body of Christ. Second, to serve humanity. This is the good of all people. So whatever gifts God has given me or given you are for the church and for the human race in some way. So I have to be thinking about how to put these gifts to work in service to my fellow human beings. And then finally, addressing the needs of the world along the lines of each person's particular gift, whatever it might be. This embodied marriage between the bridegroom Jesus and the bride the church makes us one flesh with Jesus, which makes his mission our mission. It makes us his covenant partner And all of this theology, guys, this body ecclesiology, this bride ecclesiology, this temple ecclesiology, which connects to how Jesus is saving the world in this covenant vocational partnership with his bride, is why the church says there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. Now, we're going to unpack that idea in another episode but here is all the raw material for it. Here is the, the ecclesiology for making such a claim that Jesus has not chosen to carry out his mission to save the world without his bride. Just as God didn't put Adam in the garden without a bride, Jesus is not carrying out his mission without a bride or outside the bride. Rather, he has shared his own saving vocation and mission with her, so that without her, the mission will not and does not and cannot happen. His life is his gift to her, such that she becomes by grace or charism an active participant in his own dominion over the world, by which he is turning it into the dwelling place of God. So that statement that people um, uh, critique, no salvation outside the church, is a way of saying, look, body and bride ecclesiology, temple ecclesiology, God will not do it without his covenant partner, the church. She is a, invested in it. Now, I want to share some photos that I've shared in a previous episode to tie all this together, this body and temple and mission and charism imagery. The first is this, the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended body of Christ. This body of Christ is really present to and united to 
this body of Christ in which you see a gathered church gathering together for worship. That crucified, buried, risen, and ascended body is joined to this body, this bride, this gathered assembly in the Eucharistic body of Christ, this one that you see now, which is the means by which we remain in communion with the risen Jesus and are summarily sent out as forth this body of Christ, the missionary body of Christ, filled with his graces and gifts, extending his reach, co-laboring with him in his saving mission, and by making disciples and by baptizing them into the body and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded, we are expanding and extending the footprint of the temple. The temple's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the world until, as the prophet Habakkuk said in chapter 2.14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is our temple, body, bride, ecclesiology. Okay. Well, you <laughs> preached. You're preaching a lot more like N.T. Wright than Billy Graham, but you're preaching. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> well, all um, right. <laughs> I, I want to see if Matt has anything to say, because I'll, I'll put my closing comments into the closing that I do in just a moment. I do, but I'm going to wait until after you've said your thing, because it'll make more sense <laughs> after you've said your thing. No, I want to go last. No. <laughs> I want Kenny. No. Okay. Well, look. Just whatever we okay, do, don't I'll, let the Pentecostal go last. We'll be here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In the closing section in the catechism, does a lot of summarizing, and, and it goes back quite a bit further than what we've been dealing with in the last episode or two. And so I, I'm not going to read them all. I want to just read uh, the, the the last four short paragraphs, and I'll make my conclusion there, because this sums up where we've been. Paragraph 807, the church is this body of which Christ is the head. She lives from him, in him, and for him. He lives with her and in her. There's a lot said there. Paragraph 808, the church is the bride of Christ. He loved her and handed himself over for her. He has purified her by his blood and made her the fruitful mother of all God's children. No salvation outside the church. There you are. Epis I mean, uh, paragraph 809, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The spirit is the soul, as it were, of the mystical body, the source of its life, of its unity and diversity, and of the riches of its gifts and charisms. Paragraph 810. Finally, hence the universal church is seen to be a people brought into unity from the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so many images and pictures and themes come together in the things that we've talked about today. The temple, the glory cloud, the Spirit, there's so many things. But another image that comes to my mind that I want to close with is this idea of, of the image and likeness of God. Because this is another way in which I can tie all this together. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, you guys, is the beginning verses of Hebrews, where, this is my paraphrase, but God spoke in times past through the prophets and, and, uh, and, and apostles. He has now spoken to us in his son, who is, this is, uh, I think this is the New American Standard Version, but who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact 
representation of his nature. And I, I love that phrase. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, which takes us back to Genesis chapter one, where, at, where the first Adam, Adam and Eve, are created in the image and likeness of God. They were also a perfect representation of God's nature that was lost. And that's why when we come to Christ and his sacrificial death, we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, oh, now I'm paraphrasing again because I don't have it here, but he says that we are being remolded into the image in which we were created from one stage of glory to another. So in, in order for the knowledge of God's glory to fill the world as the waters cover the seas, as you just said, Kenny, in order for us to be Christ, be his body, be his bride, to utilize the gifts that he's given us to have the effect on the church, to have the effect on our brothers and sisters, but on the world as well, we have to be molded into his image and likeness. And the more we are remolded into the image and likeness in which we were created, the more we can be that. And so I just see all these beautiful pictures and images and symbols just all coming together in scripture. And it, frankly, it just kind of blows me away. Well, Matt. and that's really where, where I was going to kind of wrap things up and come back to this whole question of how Catholicism sees the world analogically, right? We see that all the things that God has given us and used to speak to us before are an analogy towards who he is. And so these images are extremely useful. Images like the human body, right, which God created, have a purpose in teaching us something about the one who created it. This institution of marriage, right, has a purpose in showing us, uh, you know, the temple, some people might say, well, that's old covenant stuff. We do away with that. We don't care about that anymore. The church says, no, this shows us in a very deep and rich and real way what God is doing through the course of the whole thing. So, I mean, if you wanted to put it on like a cycle, right, as we started at the beginning, the church is the temple of God where Christ marries his bride. Well, the church is also the bride that Christ marries. That bride of Christ is actually also the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, right, is the temple where God marries and meets his people, right? And then, which is the bride, <laughs> which is also the body, which is also the temple. And all around and around and around you go. Like, all these images matter, and they all, yes. you know, I can't think of a better way to say it, that they just kind of mm -hmm. crash into one another and just expand upon each other's meanings. And the more that you start to dig into them, the more you realize that worship is a lot more like marriage than you thought, and that marriage is a lot more like Christianity than you thought, and that your own human body is a lot like more like marriage and like the temple than you thought. It, they all kind of come together. That's all I had to say. Amen. About so that. So good. Well, gentlemen, we've uh, so you, we've restrained so, so Kenny the, adequately. Yeah, are you going to let the Pentecostal have the final word? I I say nope. I, I say cut him, cut him off. To. I'm all preached out. I'm all preached. You're not out. even sweating that <laughs> okay. much, man. I'm kind of disappointed. So. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta you know mop the but you gotta have the guy who's walking pacing behind you the whole time and comes through and mops you a little bit when you get when you get going. <laughs> then it, then it's for well. We still have more to get to as we go through what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say about the nature of the church. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to watch previous episodes to see how we built to this, go to chnetwork.org. Uh, there's great episodes in this particular series, but also some other series we've done on things like baptism, Sola Scriptura, the Eucharist, and other stuff. So um, head over there for that. Uh, join our online community, which you can find at community.chnetwork.org. 
or you can interact with others who are having these same kinds of questions uh, along the way. And then uh, don't forget that this program, as well as a whole bunch of other things that we offer, are all offered um, as much as possible for free to people. And that's because we have wonderful partners in Mission uh, who are generous in their support. And if you want to join them uh, by also supporting the work, please go to chnetwork.org. There's a big donate button at the top, and you can make a one-time gift. Maybe you want to do a monthly gift, whatever you feel you're being led to do to help others who are on, as it were, the journey. Ken and Kenny, thank you so much. Yeah. Have a wonderful Thank day. Thank you. Great. We'll see you next week. <laughs>